Hello and welcome to In A Good Place, the well-being and personal development podcast from Hello, hosted by me, Rosie Nixon. It's great to have you here. In each episode, I'll be chatting to an inspirational personality. And for this, our second season, I'm also going to talk to our guests about key moments when their lives moved into a new chapter. I'm calling this a reset, and it's a topic that gets me really excited. Since we launched this podcast, I've been on my own reset journey. I've refashioned my working life, going from editor-in-chief to the role of creative brand ambassador at Hello, allowing myself more time for my family and for my other passion, writing books. It has given me a new lease of life. So I thought this would be a really interesting area to dive into with my guests. So I've asked them to come to the recording with two reset moments for us to discuss as part of the chat. At the end of each conversation, there will be some takeaways and I guarantee you will feel one step closer to creating the life you want to wake up to. Here at Hello, we love smashing a taboo and especially when it comes to giving airtime to women's health issues. Did you know that one in three women will experience some form of bladder weakness in their lifetime? It's an especially common experience for new mums and 30% of women are using the wrong products to help manage these issues. It's important to always seek medical advice, but in the meantime, the Tenor Discreet Ultra Pads range are specifically designed for bladder weakness, keeping you dry and odour-free for up to 12 hours. So as a busy mum, you can go about your everyday life in confidence. Thank you, Tenor, for being a part of our mission to support others in vulnerable moments. Dr. Zoe Williams joins me on the podcast this week. When she's not working in the community as an NHS GP, Zoe is best known as one of the in-house doctors on This Morning. She's also a podcaster and an author, having recently published her first book, You Grow Girl, a body and mind guidebook for growing up through puberty and beyond. Zoe is passionate about women's health and has taken part in Hello's menopause campaigning. She's also shared some very special moments from her personal life on our pages, including revealing her pregnancy joy at becoming a mum to her gorgeous little boy Lisbon with her partner Stuart in 2021. Motherhood and fertility is a subject we're going to dive straight into in this interview. So welcome to the podcast, Zoe. Tell me, are you in a good place? I'm in a good place, but, uh, well, we were both at Ascot yesterday, so sort of in a good place in the sense that I had a wonderful day, but feeling a little bit worse for wear, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said it before me. (laughs) I think I'm feeling exactly the same. I don't know whether Lisbon does this, but my boys seem to know when I've been out on a busy day or if I've got one coming up, and one of them always seems to wake up in the night. Oh, as really? happened last night. <laughs> uh, actually, no, he was good as gold last night. He was asleep when oh. I got home and he didn't wake up until I think it was about seven o'clock this morning. So he was very good. The dream. Well, lucky you. You're very lucky you didn't get that memo then. We better um, not yeah. let him talk to my boys. <laughs> now, that question, are you in a good place? Do you kind of relate to that more mentally or physically? What does it mean to you? Um, I think I related to that mentally. Yeah, when you asked that question, my brain straight away went to, am I in a good place emotionally, I mm. suppose, right now in this moment? Kind of like the, how are you really type question. Yeah. That's how it felt. 
It's like asking somebody twice, isn't it? It's so easy yeah. to just say I'm fine, but when you ask it again. Yeah, it's a nice question actually, isn't it? Because we do, we have that automatic response. If you say, oh, are you okay? We just go, yeah. And then, you know, you can follow up with that, but are you really okay? But actually, are you in a good place? It's a more in-depth question, isn't it? It's a more, it's like you want the honest answer. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're going to go straight into your amazing new book, You Grow Girl, which came yeah. out very recently. Holly Willoughby called it a book that every girl needs to grow up happy, healthy and thriving. Oh. So is this the book that you wish you had when you were growing up? Absolutely. It absolutely is that. Um, all the information I wish I'd had, as well as kind of a, a trusted little friend who can guide you in the right direction when you come across all those challenges that we come across when we go through the puberty years. So obviously there's all the physical changes, you know, periods, growing hair, body odor, getting boobs, gaining weight, all those things that happen to us. But also um, we talk a lot about all the emotional changes that happen as well and getting crushes and how relationships can change with your friends, with your parents and breaking up with a friend, breaking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend all of that, and then a big section on, on mental health, actually. And I think that conversation we just had, something around that, about not just their own mental health, but how they can look out for for others when it comes to, to mental health, to bullying, to, oh, I don't know, like recognising your privilege and, you know, being kind in a world where some people have an easier ride than others. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of everything. Yeah, I love the fact that it is such a broad book. It's not just about the physical changes that your body goes through. And kindness is a strong theme, subject close to my heart as well. Why was that important to you to bring into the book? Well, I, th I think um, through those sort of tween and teenage years when you're growing up, I think young people, girls and boys, they have a lot of questions. And you're kind of going from an age where you've always been told, what to do and expected to behave a certain way to to getting a bit more independence and, and choosing your own path in life and I think you know we know that bullying is so common and so many people are exposed to bullying in this age and I think what the book tries to do is perhaps help the people reading it understand a bit more about why bullies might be bullying and what they mm. can do to take an active role if they're not being bullied themselves, but they're witnessing it, you know, how you can do something positive in a kind way to support the person being bullied, but also support the person who is the bully. Because usually bullying is a symptom of, of something that, you know, is, is, is not great in that person's mm. life. And I think it was an opportunity for me as well to also tap into some of the things that I'm particularly interested in, such as health inequality and social inequality mm. and and there's a, yeah, there's a lot of messaging in there because I think, you know, if I can influence actually however many, hopefully lots and lots of young people who read that book yeah. to understand how they as a young person can actually change not just their own world, but change the world around them. Mm -hmm. So whether it's within the family home, within their school classroom to be a better place, then hopefully that will make difference. Yeah. I was thinking about my own adolescence as I looked through your book and how all of those bits of information you pick up in such a piecemeal way in the yeah. past. There was yeah. little bits at school, bits that your mum told you, bits yeah. that you maybe read on the back of a Tampax 
books, you know, bits yeah. that you got from magazines, books like the Judy Bloom books and TV yeah. shows and Grange Hill at the time when I was growing up. You know, yes. it's so piecemeal that you sort of build your picture of the world. What was adolescence like for you? Um, Where did you learn about those things? Well, like you say, that this is, and this is why this book is is written for girls growing up in today's world because mm. it's a very different world in that now girls can access information anywhere. You know, it's all available to them online. And as parents, obviously, the concern then is you don't know that they're getting that information from yeah. reputable sources. Yes, you're right. Um, but yeah, for me, growing up. I remember, it's funny, as you mentioned, the, the Tampax packet. I remember whenever my mum was having her period and the box of Tampax would be out. And I used to obsessively read that leaflet because yes. I was periods later than most of my friends. Yeah. And on that leaflet, there was a little image yes. of where a tampon was yes. inserted. So the I image remember was... looking at that as well, exactly. Yeah. And it looks so complicated and kind of terrifying. Yeah. And I look back and I think, well, that was the only place I could access information about yeah. a vagina which is part of my own anatomy mm-hmm. uh, but there wasn't anything else you know it wasn't really something I wanted to ask my mum about it wasn't yeah. really taught in school like in sex ed you maybe saw you know you had perhaps five seconds of an image where it showed the vagina and I'm like mm-hmm. this is part of my body and yeah I wanted to know more so I used to yeah just read that leaflet every month and almost be a bit obsessed with it and I, yeah. I mentioned that in the book like in the book there are certain moments that I call overshare moments where I share things that are perhaps slightly embarrassing or a bit kooky about my own experience of of growing up in a hope that it you know it allows girls to have a little giggle at me or maybe you know think oh actually you know we all do things that are a bit weird and funny when we're yeah. growing up and I was no exception. Oh, so it's like a trusted friend or sort of big sister element, which is so important, isn't yeah. it? I think that's the hope. And I think my other hope with the book is that hopefully girls will read it and not think that, okay, well, puberty is scary. Um, they'll feel armed with the knowledge mm-hmm. to do with the challenges. But also I've tried to, I think I've talked about it in quite a positive way as well, because there's so much to look forward to. It's yeah. such an exciting time in a girl's life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think my hope would be that girls would, after reading that book, feel feel informed, but feel empowered. Yes. Um, feel that they've got tools to help them build, maintain resilience and confidence and good self-esteem, but also leave them excited and looking forward to to growing up and growing into an adult. Yeah, sort of demystifying that that whole time. And I love talking about confidence. There's a really great analogy in the book that draws on your experience as a gladiator <laughs> from the Sky series, where you might remember Dr. Zoe was Amazon, the gladiator for a long while. Um, and you draw on that sort of gladiator experience, don't you? Do you want to tell yeah. everyone that? Yes. So in the book, there are also these um, doctors always prescriptions and these are little actionable tasks and activities that I encourage the girls to do. And one of them is pull a power pose. Um, And this goes back to my experience of when I became Amazon the Gladiator. Our very first time we were filming with a live audience in a massive studio. Uh, My very first event was the pyramid. So I was stood at the top of this high pyramid I'm terrified of heights. And when I looked down, I was stood on metal bars with gaps in between and I could see straight down to the floor. 
Um, and this oh was seconds gosh. away from the whistle blowing to start the event. And I, my legs were actually shaking. Oh. And um, I was terrified. I felt sick. And then, the you know, we had to, we were directed, the director, the stage director said, right, Amazon, pull Amazon pose one to camera four. So I found camera four and I had this sort of big, like gracious pose where I put my chest out and put one on arm up in the air yeah Hold, so I held that for a few seconds and then another really strong pose which was pose number two to camera whatever and I realized that after about 30 seconds of staring at the camera and pulling this pose that had been choreographed for me my legs had stopped shaking and I'd sort of embodied wow. this character of Amazon and I felt I felt in that moment, I felt confident and I felt like I've got this. So I thought, right, hold on to that, hold on to that feeling. So there is actually actually research out there that says the way we approach the world with our physical bodies can actually alter the way we think and feel. So mm. this particular prescription, I encourage the girls to give themselves, make, make up a gladiator name for themselves, think about the qualities that that person has and then create their own power pose um, and do it in the mirror and practice it. And then the next time you feel that you need a boost of confidence, remind yourself of your gladiator name, shift your body slightly in the direction of that pose, because you might not yeah. want to stand in the classroom and stick your hand up in the air, and embody that feeling and take it with you. So those are the types of little, little tasks and activities that are in the book that I hope girls will come back to again and again and again and, and utilize them to help them be the best versions of themselves thinking about what could be my gladiator name now what would it be what I don't know be? what could it be oh gosh I don't know it'd have to begin with an R wouldn't it an R or oh, no, I'm thinking is it something to do something related to Nixon oh yeah mm. oh, I'm gonna have a think about that uh, but I read the other day about um high-fiving yourself in the mirror you heard of that one as well. Another way to sort of boost confidence. Yeah. Like in the morning, you feel slightly faintly ridiculous doing it, but that sort of makes you laugh and kind of breaks the fog that you might be in as well. And physically high-fiving yourself in the mirror, it's a similar thing, isn't it? And, and then and you, you can utilise that with affirmations as well. So there's a section yeah. of affirmations. So you could high-five yourself, look yourself in the eye and say, you've got this. Yeah, look, exactly. And that's make a big difference. Yeah. You approach that next meeting or task or sports mm. event or whatever it is, walking into school, if you've been feeling nervous about yeah, that, it can really make a big difference. Bringing out that alter ego is such a good way to be able to be in touch with your inner voice, isn't it? Yes. To sort of say, right, I'm going to be this sort of Lionheart. Maybe I could be Lionheart or something like that. I'm a Leo. <laughs> yeah. And, and you have to come up with a power pose as well, Rosie. Yeah, I know. I do. Well, you see I've got this lightning bolt on a tattoo on my arm that is sort of like my kind of confidence booster sometimes yeah. my group of girlfriends we've all got one oh. and I sometimes do find myself sort of rubbing it or pressing it if I'm feeling a bit nervous and it almost gives me that power so I'd have to do a Usain Bolt type of lightning bolt thing yeah you can't see me doing it now but I am <laughs> yeah Lionheart with my lightning bolt that's going to be me in front of the mirror next time I'm feeling anxious about something <laughs> amazing um, but it, it can make a big difference and because we all have this negative inner voice don't we and I think as girls and women it can take over and it can mm -hmm. affect our confidence to the point that we might not do things we might not take opportunities we might not stick our hand up in class when we know the answer because that little inner voice is saying oh but you might be wrong oh but they'll judge you oh mm -hmm. but you know whatever oh but you might stammer your words or 
we all have that voice and actually yeah. what we need to do is it's fine it's there to protect us but it can actually run the show so we have to like make sure we've got our positive voice so using things like affirmations high-fiving power poses can counterbalance that that negative yeah. inner voice and make sure that we we do do the things because we are capable we are good enough and we have got this what affirmations do you use so my affirmation is, yes, you can. And I talk about the story behind that in the book because as a little girl, I grew up in, in Burnley in northwest England. I was the only mixed race girl. I was the only black girl at my school. So I always felt different. I had quite severe asthma as well. And I had no confidence. I was so clingy to my mum. And, and actually, I went through my life often being told by other people, no, you can't. So when I was at secondary school and I said I wanted to become a doctor, I was told by my teachers to come up with some more realistic um, goals. But I really told myself, no, you can't. In fact, I used to, my brother used to take the mickey out of me because there used to be this duck on TV called Orville the Duck. Do you remember? Yeah, of course I do. And Keith and Orville. Oh, Keith, Keith and Orville. Yes. Yes. And he used to go, oh, I wish I could fly up in the sky, but, but I, can't. I can't. And they go, you can. And it goes, yes. Cuddles the monkey. Yeah. Cuddles that had the funny like snort. Yeah. So my brother used to take the mickey at me and call me Orville because I'd always I would always say, I can't, I can't, I can't. And that was my that's what I said. But my mum always said to me, whatever it was I wanted to do, however wild or wacky, she always said, Yes, you can. Um, Mm. And my PE teacher I mentioned in the book as well. She used to, I used to run the 200 metres competitively for school, but she knew she had to come and stand on the sideline next to me because I'd stand there shaking, going, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. She'd be like, yes, you can, yes, you can. So that's that's my affirmation. And, you know, I'm at ITV just now. I've just done this morning before speaking yeah. to you. And I still get nervous. You know, that little girl is still, that's still who I am. But I've been able to override it. And I sit on the sofa in the ad break before I go live. And that's what's going through my head. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And kind of, yeah, coaching myself, I guess, be my own little cheerleader. That's so great to know that even people like you who are used to seeing on live TV still get nervous and still oh, have gosh, to have yeah. that internal dialogue. Yeah. I'm terrified of everything, Rosie. <laughs> really? Gosh, I would never know it. Not in a million years. You always seem so sorted. I it's think sometimes all... we look up to GPs so much as well as being able to kind of fix us physically you know prescribe the right things and that that you should just be there that in control of your own life and know everything and be uber confident but it's not always like that it's not always like that and it definitely hasn't been for me over the years but you know what I want to get across to girls in this book is that you can feel nervous you can lack confidence you can have that internal voice telling you you can't do it but you can you do have the power to override all of it and just have a go and you know fail if you fail it's fine we all I failed so many things um but if you never have a go then you automatically fail so yeah I think one of the things I really want I do a lot of work outside of that with young people as well I have a charity and we work with young people and it's about raising aspirations particularly for people who are coming from a life where perhaps people like them don't usually become doctors or don't Mm -hmm. usually whatever it is they want to be but I believe everyone should always be encouraged to do whatever it is they want to do. Yeah, or not having those cheerleaders like you had from your PE teacher, you know, and your mum saying, yes, you can, you know, when they're saying that they can't. Talking of this morning, 
how it's obviously been a bit of a tumultuous time there. How has it affected you? Or are you okay? And have you had to get involved in your sort of GP way with anything that's been happening? So yeah, I'm I'm okay, and it, it feel, I think it feels like everything's back to business mm. as as normal now. More than anything, I've really felt for the staff. Like it's a huge team that work here. From so Chris, who works in the art department, literally is my hero today because I dropped an ear earbud in the car yeah. seat down where it got stuck down where the seatbelt goes into the base of the car oh no so he got out and got it so you know the people who work in the production office people working in the gallery you know and it is it's a big team and mm. we all get on and and I I love coming to work because I walk through the door and I see all my mates and I really you know there was a point where I think everybody felt that their jobs were in jeopardy and you know there's people who've worked on this show for decades yeah so I think that was my biggest concern, but I think it, it feels like things have settled down now. It's been a really emotional and difficult time for everybody, but I think we're out the other end. Yeah. I, I, I was never asked to get involved in, in any way, shape or form as a, mm. as a doctor. Well, work is such a big part of our lives, isn't it? You know, really? it's important for employers to support the mental health of the employees because it can be quite paralysing when things are going wrong and we all need support with that. Um, do people sort of come to you with questions? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you deal with that? Um, I guess it's, it's, it's a normal part of my life, that where, whether it's family or friends or sometimes like just people in the pub. What we have to do as doctors is we have to be very, very careful that we are not overstepping the mark or the boundaries. And also, you know, if it's a random stranger who you don't know without knowing their medical history, it's knowing your limitations. But, you know, sometimes... Some, often you can give people advice, even that whether that is, oh, you know, this is something I can reassure you about, or actually this is something you probably should go and see your GP about. It's a normal part of what, what, what I do. And I think, you know, I'm so lucky that I have all this knowledge and this skill of being a doctor. Um, so when people that I work with or my family or my friends come to me and ask for help, it's no bother. I don't mind mm. helping. I actually quite like it because, you know, that's what I enjoy doing, helping people. So if I care about the person, I enjoy it even more. But I do have certain rules around that. And I always say whenever I've been on holiday, on a girl's holiday or a hen do or something like that, I always say that my rule is you can't ask me a medical question until I've had two cups of coffee in the morning. Um, I'm glad you didn't say two sangrias or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can't ask me a medical coffee uh, question until I've had two cups of coffee. And you can't <laughs> ask me a medical question after I've had an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. So sometimes if it's a girl's holiday, there's about a two-hour window when you're yeah. <laughs> the clinic, The clinic's open and then it'll be yeah. shutting at this time. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a good idea. Otherwise, literally, you could be in clinic with your friends. I mean, it's very hard. And I know that we all talk about with our girlfriends, kind of, and sometimes we are giving each other unsolicited advice. So yeah. having a GP as part of your close friendship circle must be a real bonus. Now, let's dive into your reset moments that you gave me in advance of this chat. And the first one is going to Ayanapa when you were 20 years old. It took you away from a destructive relationship, you say, and allowed me to refine myself. And you stayed there for nine months and during that time refocused your ambitions and then began training to become a doctor when you returned home. So there's a lot there. Let's yeah. start at the beginning. Um, for how long? Tell me about this destructive relationship. 
Well, I'd, I've been in a relationship with somebody who, in hindsight, I should have probably never been in a relationship with for several years. It was someone who was older than me, and it reached a point prior to this trip to Ayanapa where we had eventually broken up, but then we sort of kept getting back together, breaking up and getting back together. And, you know, this person wasn't always honest with me, let's say. Mm-hmm. So so I was in a bit, I was in a really dark place, actually. And my best friend, Joanne, was going to Ayanapa with her friend, Isabel. They've booked this holiday. And she basically, she came to me and she said, I'm not going without you, you're coming. I was like, okay, all right, yeah, it's a good idea. So booked a flight, packed my bags, off I went for two weeks to Ayanapa. And I was taking antidepressants at the time, um, oh, which I wow. think I think I ran out of tablets after the first week or something. I don't know. But I was taking antidepressant medication at the time. I really wasn't in a good place. Because um, you were struggling at home at that time as well, weren't you? I know you left yeah, home moved, at 19. I'd moved, moved out of home. You know, my mum, my I've always been very open about the fact that mm-hmm. my mum had a alcohol dependency. Um, and she sadly passed away six years ago because mm-hmm. of that. So it was, it, was a, it was difficult. But after about a week of being in Ayanapa, felt different it was like I'd, I'd lost myself and I felt myself coming back the real me and uh, and I met this girl called Kim in the toilets from Jersey and we got chatting and she was she was on the holiday on holiday but her and her friends were planning on staying to work the season so I told her all about this relationship and stuff and she was like you shouldn't go home you should just stay come and stay with us and I was like yeah I will you know, next day I was like, oh, that was a funny conversation, but I didn't think she meant it. Then the morning I was meant to be leaving to go back to England, she turned up. She turned up. She's like, right, I've come yeah. to help you with the cases. You come and stay with us. I was like, what? And my friend Joanne said, what are you going to do? She said, why don't you stay? She said, just stay. She's like, you know, there's nothing going on at home. You're not missing anything. Stay. So I actually went to the phone boxes before I had a mobile phone and rang this boyfriend and basically based my decision on that conversation and the conversation basically told me what might the answer that I should just stay so I did tell him I was staying I just said goodbye um said I didn't need picking up from the airport and that was that and I stayed and I stayed for nine months and I healed and I got better and I'd lost my path and I'd lost my ambition which would I'd always been to be a doctor and I didn't get the A-level results I needed to go to medical school because things had been really tricky around that time. But in that moment, I was like, do you know what? Actually, I am going to be a doctor. I'm going to find a way. Um, and then when I got back home, that's what I did. So I worked in a hospital as a healthcare assistant for ages. And then I went to Newcastle University to study biomedical sciences because it was in the medical school. So I got myself close to the medical school. And then I managed, basically managed to worm my way into medical school so I did I, I repeated the how first. how did you worm your way <laughs> in <laughs> I don't hear of this very often <laughs> yeah so well it was it was a combination I think of, of a look and taking opportunity so a couple of weeks into this biomedical sciences degree there were loads of us on the same first year because by, whether it's biomedical sciences or physiology or genetics or biochemistry we all collectively did the same first year, which is basic science, and then you could switch around. So I think there were about 250 of us in the, on these combined courses. And the lecturer came in and said, 
as a university, we're trying something new this year that's never been done before and it might never be done again. But we recognise that there are people in this room who want to be doctors and who would be amazing doctors, but for some reason they haven't been given that opportunity, whether it's because they didn't get the grades or didn't pass the interview or were having difficulties in life or whatever. So there is, so we're, we are going to allow six people from this room to come back into first year, but to study medicine next year. In order to apply in the first semester, you've got to get a first in all of the modules. Then it's an essay application, 600 words, why you would be a fantastic doctor, 300 words of any relevant experience. Then we will interview 12 people for the six places. And those wow. six places... Six be, out of 250 people. Yeah. Those six places will be conditional on getting a first in every single module in semester two. So I worked hard. I got the grades, did the application, did the interview. At the interview, they only offered two of us this con conditional place, me and a girl called Ali. And she, sadly, I think she got 69% when she needed 70% in one module. So it was just me. Oh, um, my gosh, Zoe. That's <laughs> done. That's amazing. And so I got on to medicine. Sheer hard yeah. work. And I must say, Ali did become a doctor because she completed her degree and then did an accelerated medicine course. But, yeah, so it was just, so I just, and that's the hardest I've ever worked, actually. Medical school was, I would never say it was easier or doddle, but I never had to work as hard in medical school as I had to work that year and yeah it's bizarre because I was trying to somebody about this recently from the age of three I always knew there's a little part of me that not wanted to be a doctor that just knew I would be like it was what I was meant to do right and therefore I don't know maybe it was fate you know the universe gave me that opportunity and that's such an inspiring story for somebody, you know, that is feeling that they're not going to perhaps achieve the A-level results that they might be thinking they desperately need to get the university place. There's so much pressure at that age. Um, and sometimes that drive to achieve does come to you a bit later. So yeah. what strikes me as well is that you had that opportunity in Ayanapa to pause to get away from a life that wasn't serving you in the right ways at that time. Yeah. Sometimes it is having that opportunity to stop, pause, gain some perspective and sort of start again afresh, which is why yeah. I'm loving calling them a reset moment. Yeah, so it was, it was a true, had I not said yes to that trip to Ayanapa, I, I don't know where I would be now, yeah. but it's unlikely. What a sliding doors moment. Are you still yeah. friends with your Ayanapa friends yes, that convince you to stay? Yes. Are you? My friend Jo, yeah. yeah. yeah so she still lives in Burnley and I, you know, left many, many years ago. But yeah, she's, uh, she's still one of my very best, dearest, closest friends. Oh, how fantastic. Well, that just shows as well when an opportunity is presented to you, follow your instinct. Because you so. could have said, oh, I should really go home, blah, blah. but something was making you make that decision to stay. And I think that, that's the message I often try and get across to young people is that we all get different levels of opportunities presented to us, but we all get opportunities. And, you know, sometimes doors are flung open for some people and for other people, doors are more likely to be slammed in your face. And that could be based on gender age ethnicity if you have a disability like you know it depends on lots of different things but I once heard a really lovely quote that I like to share which is if a door does get slammed in your face don't take that as a no that's a maybe go around the side there might be a window that's just slightly open <laughs> that you can crowbar your way into and I feel like that's what I did with medicine yeah. you know there's a glimmer glimmer of an opportunity so I threw everything at it to make it happen 
Yeah, you're so right. And recognizing that as an opportunity and running with it. Where did that drive sort of come from, do you think? Because that is very driven to apply yourself in that way to win that one spot out of, you know, all those hundreds of people that could have easily taken that place, possibly. What gave you that drive to do so well through those exams? Um, I honestly, I honestly don't know where the drive came from. I, th- I guess it comes back perhaps to that, yes, you can that overriding every other voice in my head that says well this is never do I really want to be at university till I'm 27 and seeing the downsides of that and what's the chances of me getting through and is my experience enough and you know they're going to judge me in this way because of x y and z and overriding all of it with a but yes you can and and what if you do become successful and what have you got to lose for trying so I think in the end that's what I thought well might as well try get good grades because there's nothing wrong with that anyway and if I get offered the opportunity, I could even turn it down. You know, if I decide actually I'm going to be at university until I'm 27, I don't want to do that. I don't have to accept it. I thought there's no harm in trying and just taking that first step, which is to get the grades. Um, and then obviously as I went through the process that last semester, it was like, I just need to get these grades now. And that's it. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to go to yeah. medical school. The motivation was there. But I think that, yeah, in terms of what's my drive, I think it's, it's, it's that yes, you can. It's that whatever it is, just thinking, well, actually, you can, even though the probabilities might be low, you can do it. Mm. Now we're going to move on to your second reset moment, which is having your son, your gorgeous boy, <laughs> Lisbon Lion. Yes. Um, and there's so much to this story as well. Um, but perhaps we'll start with his name, gorgeous <laughs> Lisbon Lion, which I love that name. Um, and I've heard you talk before about the lion sort of coming from um, you and Stuart and the Lisbon. Come on, let's let's hear just in a nutshell your meeting story because it is so fantastic. Tell me how old you were and the significance of that night in Lisbon. So I was 39, reached a stage in like I always knew I wanted to be a mother. So was kind of considering using donor sperm and going alone. I was kind of quite far down the path of of taking that action. Mm. And I went on frozen your eggs. I froze my eggs when I was 38. And then, yeah, at 39, I decided I was going to go it alone, um, solo parent, and was sort of just letting all that digest settle in and um, was making plans and inquiring about donor sperm. Um, and I went to Lisbon with a couple of my girlfriends for the weekend. We'd been out for dinner, we were in a bar, we were going to leave. And my friend Helena said, come on, girls, let's just do one lap before we go. You never know who you might meet. And so I was walking around and my hand just got grabbed and pulled. <gasps> And this guy said, hi, I'm Stuart. And I was like, hi, I'm Zoe. And (laughs) much laughing. It turned out we had a lot in common. We're both 39. We were actually, although we met in Lisbon, we were living 1.2 miles away from each other. So Um, weird. That's amazing. The year before that, I'd been living in Earlsfield where he lived. I'd been living about 200 metres away (gasps) from him for six months, but we'd never met. And, um, you know, we both have the same heritage in that both of our dads are Jamaican. Um, yeah. One's white, even though Stuart's very light-skinned. And, yeah, we're both single. And we just got on really, really well. So, so yeah, when we got back to London, we started dating. And I think it was our fourth date because I was so far into this process of going into being a parent on my own. I thought, I've got to have a conversation with him. He's probably going to freak out and run out the door, but I've got to have the conversation. And he was just like, yeah, he said, I think 
he said, I know. He said, I, I can't. He sort of said, the day I met you, I knew that this is going to work out. And he said, let's say if we're still together in six months, which I'm very confident we will be, we'll just start trying. That was amazing. I love that. I think there is something about just knowing. Like, mm. did you feel that you'd met your soulmate? Well, he certainly did. I'm not sure mm. I felt Okay. That <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> he really grew on you then. I think I'm much more, uh, I don't know, I think I'm quite analytical with my feelings, but I know I was definitely, you know, I, I had good vibes and I knew I was more interested in him, I think, at that stage, I've met him so quickly than I ever have been in anybody. And I know the next day when he didn't text me, I was devastated. Um, yeah. The following day after that, when he did, I was really happy. Oh, good. Um, but yeah, but he said that. He said from within half an hour of meeting me, he he knew. And he'd been single for eight years mm-hmm. and dating and stuff, you know, and having casual relationships, but hadn't actually had a girlfriend for eight years. And he said, yeah, within half an hour, he knew I was going to be his girlfriend and that we'd probably have children. What an amazing sliding doors moment. If he hadn't stuck out his hand then, I know. like this whole Lisbon might not be here. I mean, it's I know, just Helena amazing. Said, Let's just yeah, do, one, do lap. one more lap. You should get one that more tattooed. Lap. Yeah, <laughs> that could be another affirmation. <laughs> yeah, I love that. But having that sort of, you know, idea of freezing your eggs is quite mm-hmm. a sort of topical one. You know, I certainly yeah. know lots of women that are now thinking about that, which does seem like a wise thing to do. Do you still have some eggs in the freezer? Yeah, so with Lisbon, we conceived naturally, so those eggs are still there. And even though I, you know, the hope at the time when I was freezing the eggs would be that I'd never need to use them because I would yeah. somebody and we'd, we'd have a baby without needing to use them, and that's what's happened. Um, so I've spent a lot of money on freezing eggs and every year storing eggs. Yeah, I may never need to use, but I think it's the best money I ever spent. For me personally, I have no regrets. I'm so glad I did mm. it. But it's a difficult thing to weigh up for people because it is expensive. But really, there aren't any other downsides to it. I think for women who know that they definitely want to be a mother, and if you're, I guess, getting into your mid to late 30s, yeah. probably early 30s is the ideal time to do it, even yeah. you know, if you're really convinced then yes, there's the money. But I think for me, it was a, if I don't have children and I get to, into my 40s and that moment has passed, I don't want to look back and think there was something I could have done that I didn't do. Yes. But that mm-hmm. for me was the clincher. I thought at least I'll be able to accept that and move on from that if I've done everything that I could have done and have no regrets. And how was pregnancy for you? It was okay. I think I I think I was one of the lucky ones in that I didn't have any major issues. I had a little bit of everything, you know, all the symptoms that come with pregnancy, some back pain, some morning sickness, heartburn, constipation. That was the worst thing. I had terrible mm. constipation. But I think I was pregnant during lockdown as well. And as much as it's awful that we experienced what we experienced, being pregnant during that time was in some ways quite a good way to utilize that time because it yeah. meant I was forced to rest more you know I'm I tend to burn the candles at both ends and it means so no meant, FOMO yeah no <laughs> FOMO um it meant you know I was able to really focus on 
eating more healthily because I was cooking and exercising every day. I had the time to do that. So, um, so yeah, I think I, I was quite lucky with my pregnancy. And there are so many taboos around pregnancy. Like you mentioned, like constipation. Oh, I remember that as well. And heartburn. Yeah. I remember right. like eating a lot of Rennies kind of during yeah. that time. We had the big bottle of aniseed Gaviscon. I get through one of those. Yes. Like, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, Rennies and Gaviscon, that's it, you know. Yeah. And you also mentioned in an interview with Hello, actually, that you did have a troubling symptom with anxiety, which yeah. you worked through sort of with exercise. Yes. Yeah, so I'm someone who, I'm an anxious person, which is very different to having anxiety, but I do also have anxiety, which at times in my life I've, I've had medical treatment for that as well. But exercise, I know for me, is my it's my medicine. Um, and if I go for a couple of weeks without doing any exercise, I can almost feel that anxiety starting to to bubble up in a way that it you know it's there. It's always there. It's there every day. But normally it doesn't affect me. But I start to feel it bubbling up and bubbling over in a way that's unmanageable. But exercise is my medicine for that. It's how I keep on top of it. Uh, and I think during my pregnancy, especially with everything that was going on in the world with the pandemic and with my role as a as a medic, especially a medic in the media and some of the pressure that came with this constant changing world of news that I was delivering to people and the responsibility of trying to always get it right, but knowing tomorrow it could be completely different. Um, it was quite it was quite an anxious time. So I was really grateful that I was able to, I trained every day in my pregnancy. There wasn't a day that I didn't do exercise. What form of exercise did you do during pregnancy? Um, and a lot of a lot of walking and running because it was so nice to obviously we all wanted to get outside for an hour a day, didn't we? So um, I lived quite close to Wandsworth Common at the time, so I used to run. I used to it's called fartlek training, but it, <laughs> which is where you alternate between running and walking. Oh um, uh, yeah. So because you know I was I used to run around Wandsworth Common. That, I yeah. lived in Earlsfield during the pandemic as well. I'm so surprised we didn't see each other. I'd run <laughs> up Burntwood Lane and then around the common. Yes, and, and that was my favourite place to go because I I'm not very good at. I wish I was better at things like meditation, but it's something I found really difficult to to try and get into. But I find if I sit by water, that's kind of like my meditation. So that's what I do every day. Sometimes Stuart and I would go together or sometimes I'd go on my own and I'd alternate between walking and running, sort of just listening to my body and what my body needs. Some days I would go for a proper run and I'd be overtaking blokes with this big baby bump and it made yeah. me feel amazing. It made me feel like me. Um, and then I'd sit by the water for as long as I felt I needed to, to get that sense of calm and feel that anxiety, like going back down mm. inside, settling. So yeah, that was that was my medicine. And I wish I had time to do that every day now. I really miss it, actually. Do you try to exercise every day or what's your regime like now? So, so I, and this is often what I say to people when it comes to exercise, you've got to give yourself a goal, but that goal's got to be achievable and realistic the life that you live um, and I think when you have young children and you work it is chaotic so my my goal is 10 minutes of daily movement which could be in the form of a walk it could be a yoga sometimes it's just some stretches before I go to bed if I haven't done anything or it could be a gym session or it could be a 10 minute hit or whatever but I give myself that goal of moving my body in some way shape or form for a minimum of 10 minutes every day and I know that's like my 10 that's like my dose of medicine that I know I need Mm. Now, Lisbon arrived 10 days early and you have an amazing birth story as well. Yeah. 
you pretty much delivered him yourself. Well, you yeah. and Stuart were there. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so surprise, it came 10 days early. And at the t my first, in hindsight, I first started showing signs of labour when I was in Ikea on oh. a Sunday afternoon. Were you still working at that time? Or had you stopped yeah. for maternity? Wow. No, I was still working. Um, no, I had stopped. I had stopped because I had annual leave to take. So yeah. I hadn't, yeah, so I'd, I, yeah, so I had stopped actually. Um, I think I'd worked the Monday prior to that was my last day in general practice. But anyway, it was midnight at midnight when things really kicked off and contractions were like, yeah, this is definitely, I was meant to be on this morning. Actually, it wasn't a Sunday, it can't have been, because I was meant to be on this morning the following day. But by midnight, I was having proper contractions. But I was still in denial. I'm like, no, the baby's not coming. It was 4 a.m. before I actually emailed the team at this morning to say, I'm not going to oh make it. Oh, my gosh. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, but, yeah, so, my, so I had planned to have a home birth. Um, I say planned to because I, had, I wouldn't have said I'm having a home birth because I had thought at any point I might change my mind and want to go into hospital. But so, so we were sort of setting up the pool, uh, I had a doula, which thank goodness, um, I'd worked with the doula association throughout my pregnancy to sort of raise awareness of doulas, which was something I knew very little about before I was pregnant myself. And, and they were amazing. Um, so I do recommend to anybody who's pregnant, like just research doulas and find out what they do. Yeah. Um, they helped us so much. Um, and Letty, my doula, she got there, it must have been about six in the morning she got there. And the first thing I said to her was, what on earth is going on with different language? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> nature is a bitch. Um, because I was just like, I understand why it's painful, but I don't understand why it has to be so intense, the, the contraction. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah. I was doing my hypnobirthing thing and I was in the zone. And they couldn't fill up the birth pool because we hadn't done a practice run yet and it, it didn't fit. Our tap didn't fit the, the device. Oh, no. So what they had to do, they managed to reverse engineer this thing. Well, I was in the bath and they were the, the drain pipe that comes to drain the pool after you've had the baby, they attached that to the bath upstairs. Um, so the hot water was draining out of the bath downstairs into the pool. Oh, so, I was in the so when you say they, is that Stuart and Letty? And Letty. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm just oh in the, my gosh. you know between I'm like right what's going on what's like don't you worry about it. you just keep doing your thing you do what you do what you're doing and we'll sort this out and then because the water was cooling as it was getting down into the birth pool they kept turning the heat up in the bath I'm in this bath and it's absolutely boiling the oh, room was oh, no, sweating and I couldn't tolerate being in there for longer than a few minutes <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you're burning me. What oh, no. Okay, so it's not the serene image that I have of you in this perfect No, and then I'm in this bath and I'm self-examining myself. Well, I think I'm at five centimetres. Oh, I'm like, okay, very good. Don't push then, you know, just keep doing your breathing. Um, when the time came to get the midwives, we made the phones. It was just a bit of a comedy of errors. I mean, the number we had was the wrong number. Um, so oh, when she no. finally got to the hospital ward and they got in touch with the community midwives and blah, 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 the midwife basically didn't come until oh my 20 minutes after I'd <gasps> given birth. Wow. Um, so once it was kind of like, you know, this baby's now coming, they finally managed to fill up the birth pool. As soon as I got in the birth pool, I think I had two contractions and, and he, he was came. out. Yeah. But I just went, I was just... <laughs> 
I remember being on my knees and I could feel yeah. hair. I could feel his hair. Yeah. So I said to Letty, I'm like, no, there's no midwife. I can't have him. I'm like, I'm just going <gasps> to does it push him back in. Clenched my bum cheeks and was like, I'm just not going to let him come out. <laughs> oh my gosh. That and was the only time she touched me, I think, in the whole thing. She came out and she sort of put her hands on my hand. She said, you're a doctor. You yeah. know that this baby is coming. The next contraction, this baby's coming. So take a deep breath and you've got this sort of thing. And that was that was it. He, he, he was wow. delivered. And, oh uh, my goodness. And it was really lovely. And I guess a serene moment when... She left us, me and Stuart, together in the birth. Stuart was outside the birth pool. I was in it. And she said, I'm going to go and make a cup of tea. And we just had that few minutes, you know, it was just yeah. the three of us with Lisbon. Um, and she came wow. back in with a cup of tea. She said, so, is it a boy or a girl? Because we haven't, <laughs> no, we haven't. Oh. And we didn't know if he, what he was going to be. Because I remember no. all your Instagrams in advance where you had the like melon or the watermelon and you were kind of recording him growing in size well the baby yeah. growing in size yeah. did you yeah. have a feeling it was a boy or? um we did it, it could it flipped and changed throughout the pregnancy but by the end we did have a feeling it was a boy but yeah like we, we didn't care about that's how much that's proof that we didn't care whether it was boy or a girl mm. 10 minutes in we hadn't even looked um and then the midwives came about 20 minutes later and then an hour or so after that we were eating pizza on the sofa watching oh tv my gosh, which is incredible so brilliant to be able to have that home birth because it is yeah. quite a dilemma and especially I mean I like you had a baby when I was 40 or were yeah. you 39 when you had Lisbon or 40 I was 41 41 yeah yeah I, I was 40 when I had mine and I did find it quite hard, actually, to advocate for the birth that I wanted. Yes, did you did. hit any sort of resistance of what I they did. call a geriatric mother, which they did? I had one at 39 and the other at 40, so two boys quite close soon after each other. And I, I felt that I was kind of discouraged yeah. to be thinking about a home birth. Yes. Did you come up against that or did your GP training help you advocate for the birth you wanted? Uh, no, it didn't. I had some so, so the, and this kind of ties into the reason the midwife was late actually because she read my notes and freaked out a bit because I wasn't following the medical guidance and that delayed her getting to me ah and right okay so, so so basically because I was a geriatric mother um I've been under the care of the doctors as well as the midwives which is absolutely fine and I think I'd, I'd and I'd, I'd taken aspirin at a certain stages in my pregnancy, because um, I'd read the information that I thought, yeah, do you know, that's fine. But the sticking point for us was they wanted me to be induced on my due date if I got to it, which I never did in, in all these conversations. Mm. I never even got there. Um, so they'd sort of said, well, the words were, we can't find any reason why you can't have a home birth if you go into labour before your due date. Right. Like they were searching for a reason, but they couldn't find yes. any evidence as to why that was more dangerous for me because of my age. Um, but they were very keen for me to be induced on my due date, which is something that I wasn't keen. And I'd read the data mm. and all the rest of it. And, um, it's, you know, there was there was one study in, in America where they found that the rates of stillbirth was higher in women over the age of 40. But when you look at the study, actually, it's... What I felt was they weren't looking at me as an individual, they were looking yeah. at me as a statistic. And actually what I'd agreed to do, I said, I'm very happy to come in on my due date. 
and meet and, you know, and consider the induction. But I'll tell you now, I won't be having an induction. In fact, if you convince me that the baby needs to be delivered straight away, I'd rather have a cesarean. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm happy to come in. And, I, and I'd already prepared what I was going to say, how I was going to advocate for myself. And what I was going to say was, I was 41, but I was going to say, um, you know, you know, my meta, my metabolic health, my physical health, um, and my health age, I am particularly healthy, uh, you know, healthier than most. And I'd say if you had, if you had 139 year olds who were pregnant, would you say that my metabolic age and my physiological age would put me sort of what, maybe in the middle of those or actually in the healthier aspect of those? And I'd say all I'm asking you to do is treat me like a 39 year old. I'd have asked them to treat me like a 39 year old based on the fact that my biology, I'm pretty certain is probably 39 or less. Um, yes where we would have gone but yes I felt it wasn't yeah it wasn't great actually I didn't have a great experience Mm, it seems to be quite a common story actually you know I certainly didn't either what advice would you give sort of older mums who are listening to this and maybe keen to advocate for the birth that they really want my advice would be to look at the data which you know obviously it was easier for me because I'm a doctor but actually it was my doulas it would consider it consider speaking with a doula um because what they were really able to do they never once advised me they never once said you should do this or you should do that but they helped me answer the questions that I needed to answer so you know based on what I what was being presented to me as as there being an additional risk because of my age they actually they were brilliant because this is what I wanted they found those papers and they gave they emailed them to me so Mm. that I could read it for myself and see how much it it related to me um so I think it's really really hard because actually I know for a fact my doctors had my best interest at heart and Mm. it was a consultant who I ended up speaking to on the phone for quite a bit of time and it was late in the evening and I'm sure she had a family at home that she wanted to get back to and you know she gave up probably about 20 minutes of her time talking to me because she felt that she wanted to help me and she had my best interest at heart but I knew it was bizarre like as a mum I always wanted an elective c-section until I was pregnant and about four months into my pregnancy I just knew that I was going to deliver this baby and it was going to be fine in fact I knew that it was got had nothing to do with me it was my body and the baby's job to get out and as long as I was able to support that through yeah calm feeling loved so that the oxytocin hormone which helps drive the labor and not feeling stressed because the stress hormone cortisol actually dampens the oxytocin so I looked at all this I looked at it very scientifically but then my my natural instinct I just knew the right thing for me was to not be in hospital not be around colleagues and to be in a place where I felt safe and calm and to let the baby in my body do its thing but obviously, as a doctor, like now, I'm thinking if I have another baby, I want an elective C-section. My brain's gone back to doctor mode. So I knew my doctors were trying to do the right thing. But yeah, I, I knew, for me, the right thing. And actually, as a, as a pregnant person, I think your intuition is so strong and so powerful and not to be ignored. Mm. So it's balancing what the doctors are telling you with your own intuition but also making sure that you ask them if they're telling you statistics and they're telling you um, these are the risks and the benefits of this and that. Tell that you want more information. What are the what are the specific numbers? What is this study? What how was it done? Who was it done on? And if you feel able to actually read the study yourself and make it, at the end of the day it is your choice. So be guided by people who you trust. But 
it's your choice. Mm. Now, parenting and motherhood, it's mm. obviously an amazing time, but also a pretty overwhelming one. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the shock to the system of becoming a mother, thinking this is the hardest thing I have ever done. Yeah. Um, what surprised you the most about becoming a mother? Oh. Well, that, how hard it is. Um, I, think, I think I've always gone through life perhaps finding most things manageable, um, things that are, I've faced hard things in my life and I've managed to cope and get through them and I'm resilient and I can usually, I can, I can probably normally do most things perhaps a bit easier than the average person, if I'm honest. I find things a bit easier. Now, motherhood... Not so much. I feel like I find that harder than the average person. Mm. Uh, I remember just looking with such admiration when I'd see young mums with multiple children, you know, getting them all on the bus. And here I am, you know, as a, a more mature lady, you know, in a good financial situation with one child and thinking, I'm struggling here. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was a shock that, I thought I'd find it, I knew it was going to be hard, but I thought I'll, I'll be all right with it. And there were times when I wasn't all right with it. It was mm. really, really hard. I definitely relate to that, how some, you know, friends of mine seem to just breeze through motherhood. I don't yeah. know whether it was that I was the kind of later mother as well, but I found it really hard. <laughs> Maybe I was too sort of stuck in my own ways before. Um, being a GP and someone, you know, that we're familiar with from TV, do you ever feel judged when it comes to parenting? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think people expect me to be perfect because mm. I'm a doctor. And of course, none of us are perfect and we all have different ways of doing things. So, yes, I've definitely been criticised from time to time on social media. Even when I brought Lisbon on this morning, when he was a couple of weeks old, I brought him on. And he, he had a lot of, um, he was quite colicky at that time. So I used to, he used to like to be rocked quite vigorously, like up mm -hmm. and down. That soothed him. And he was crying, he was screaming just before we went on air. So I started doing that and he settled. So throughout our interview, I was doing that, like <laughs> rocking him quite hard like he likes. And people were saying, oh, she's a doctor. She should know how to hold a baby. And Oh, gosh. You know what I mean? People, yeah, people. But I think because of what I do, I've, I've experienced those types of criticisms before. And, you know, I've, I've, I've learned um, the rule that if 99 people are saying kind things and one person is saying something mean and cruel, our brains tend to hone in on the one. And it's like, you know, just you actually have to rationalise that and think, well, you should only mm. give that 1% of your attention. 99% of your attention should be on the other 99 comments. So that's kind of what I utilise. I didn't take it to heart. And I thought, yeah, actually, I'm very happy with the way I've parented my child. Um, mm. But it has been bloody hard. And are you and Stuart aligned in your approaches to parenting? We are, actually. I think we're, we're actually aligned in most things. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think we are. And, and I guess there, there've been, there've been a couple of things that perhaps when we first started out, we came at them from different angles, but we soon, after just one conversation, we'll agree on, you know, where we want to go. I think the first one that we came across actually was when we were weaning and, and I was going to give him some meat and she was like, well, hang on a minute, we haven't spoken about this. Is he going to be a meat eater? And I was like, well, we eat meat, so... I don't see why not. And that was our first conversation where I was like, mm. it was a given for me that yeah. we would give him meat. And for Stuart, it was, oh, well, we should discuss this and think about it. 
Um, but I just showed him um, one page of Annabelle Carmel's book where it was saying, you know, actually it's, it's five children can thrive with a vegetarian diet. Yeah. These are all the extra things that you have to think about because they don't absorb iron as easily from plant sources. So you've got to, and I think he read that and was like, actually, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I always thought, well, they should eat, if we were vegetarian, that would make sense. But I'm not, I'm not cooking different meals for my child and us. So yeah. you can cook. If uh, <laughs> it's different, you can make the food. Now, we're nearly running out of time. So just one final question around the best piece of advice that you've been given to oh. do with parenting. To do with parenting. I think the best piece of advice I've been given is to not listen to people's advice. Well, to listen to people's advice, but to not take it as a given or a must. Mm very much let it sort of swim around in your brain and consider it but feel quite happy to swipe that one to the left as you, like you do on tinder and swipe that one to the right and go with your gut, go yeah. with your gut rather than other people your gut instinct should over, i think override other people's advice well as we've heard in this chat your gut instinct has served you very well in life yeah. um, from that staying in ayanapa from taking stuart's hand to advocating for the birth you wanted you know it's clearly got you to be in such a good place today oh. oh well I loved chatting to you Zoe we covered so much and I'm sure that this conversation will be really inspiring to a lot of listeners so thank well, you for giving me your time today thank you so much Wow, Zoe was so candid and honest with me just then. I really thought that was an amazing chat and I did actually feel that I was right there in the room with her when she had baby Lisbon. I mean, what a birth story. Um, there were sort of three things that I think I'll take away from this interview the most, although there were so many points of inspiration. And the number one would be that we all have that positive voice within us. I love how Zoe told us the story about her brother calling her Orville because she kept saying I can't I can't but she learned to develop that yes you can voice so I think yes you can is such a brilliant mantra and perhaps one to pass on to friends who are feeling unconfident so absolutely love that number two trusting your instinct it became a theme of the chat with Zoe today she trusted her instinct when she stayed in Ayanapa and had that big turning point in her life she trusted her instinct when she was um, working on her birth plan I think if you start to have a deeper understanding of who you are then your inner confidence will help you advocate for the right decision to you your body knows what it needs so always follow your gut also like Zoe's exercise tip she said that just 10 minutes a day of movement for her is a realistic goal I think sometimes we can set ourselves quite unrealistic targets thinking you're going to go to the gym for an hour four times a week may not be possible but fitting that 10 minutes whether it's a quick walk you know a fast walk whether it's 10 minutes of some abs at home 10 minutes of push-ups um, on your rug at home I think we could perhaps all try to think about fitting that into our life and Zoe's so radiant and such a shining example of health that that was something I'm definitely going to take away if you enjoyed this episode please do share it with your friends and I'd be so grateful if you could leave us a rating or a review don't forget to sign up to the in a good place newsletter for more discussion around personal development tips 
the concept of resetting for success and to share your thoughts with me. Simply visit hellomagazine.com and click on the newsletter icon at the top to register. I'll see you next time.